But if you guys have your Bibles, why don't we continue with Ecclesiastes? So open with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Um, and then for tonight, we're going to be in 6, verse 10, and we're going to go through chapter 7, verse 14. And this is the halfway point. This is the official like middle of the book of Ecclesiastes. And after this, we have uh, just a handful of messages to go after this. So uh, we're moving pretty quickly. I actually wanted to start out uh, before we jump into our passage by asking you, to, you guys to do something. Um, and hopefully, I don't regret this. And hopefully, this will be encouragement to all of us um, and just a good way to review what we've covered so far. Uh, but I want you guys in the chat to just share one thing, one takeaway that you've learned from, from Ecclesiastes so far. Okay, it doesn't have to be like a super long thing. Uh, even just a few words is fine. It can be a truth that you remember or a specific way that you've applied the messages in your life. Uh, but yeah, what's, what's one takeaway that, you've, that you have from where we are so far? So go ahead and, and type that in the chat right now. All right. Um, I'm not going to wait for everyone to type someone something. So uh, don't don't worry if you didn't get a chance to to write it out. But yeah, this is really helpful. Um, hopefully, you guys can read through it for yourself and uh, learn from what other people have learned. You guys can keep typing it in, but we're gonna we're gonna keep going with our passage. So for tonight, we're gonna be in Ecclesiastes 10 or sorry 6 verse 10 to 7 verse 14. And before we read our passage. Um, I want to point out something about our text real quick, just so you guys can understand it a little better as you're reading it, okay? So Ecclesiastes and uh, just wisdom literature, which is the genre of Ecclesiastes, is, is tricky. And sometimes it's hard to know like where to make the passage divisions. Um, sometimes it's hard to see how different parts in one section relate to one another. And I think as... Uh, as we look at our passage kind of at first glance, it might seem like that way, right? Like, especially in chapter 7, verses 1 to 12, you have a bunch of Proverbs. It might seem really random and hard to understand. Uh, but let me help you kind of just big picture understand this a little bit better. Okay, so if you look at uh, chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, and then if you jump down to uh, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7, I want you to notice that the preacher bookends our section by returning to the same idea. Okay, in those verses, he's going to talk about kind of a similar theme. And as we're reading it, I want you to actually try to figure that out because I'm going to ask you to type it in the chat again. Um, and, and this idea is going to help us to understand the Proverbs in the middle. Okay, this is going to be kind of the, the umbrella uh, under which we understand this entire passage. Okay, so um, try to think carefully as we read through, read through this, but let's read our passage. This is just starting in Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10. It says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him and under the sun? Um, chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. 
It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. All right, let me pray for us, and then I'll ask you guys that question. Okay, so let's pray. Um, God, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for just time to fellowship together. Um, Father, would you give us insights from your word? Teach us wisdom. There is so much that we don't know, um, and we need your help. And uh, we are thankful that you you teach us, that you do give us wisdom and how to live uh, this life under the sun, um, despite its frustrations, despite uh, just, yeah, moments of adversity, challenges, uh, as we've seen in this past year, uh, God, you use all of it to teach us. And so we're thankful for that. And so we ask that you would teach us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right. So I said there's a common theme, right, in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 6 and then 13 and 14 of chapter 7. What is that common theme? Go ahead and you can guess. You don't have to be right. Uh, type it in the chat. What do you think is the, kind of the, the big idea that you see in both of those sections? I like how everyone's putting a question mark <laughs> after their answers. Any other guesses? We're not gonna, I'm not gonna ask you guys throughout the whole message. This is the last time I'm doing this. Okay, it's okay if you guys don't know. It's, it is kind of tricky. Um, I think Joey and Dana, your guys' uh, answers are, I think it's close. Um, so you guys both kind of mentioned, uh, like we don't know the future, right? Um, I would say that the big idea that I see is the absolute sovereignty of God in those verses. Okay, the sovereignty of God. Um, and we'll come back to that. Okay, so I want you to hold on to that thought. Uh, but as I was preparing for this message, I think by God's providence, our passage is actually very appropriate for our first speaking of this new year. And Michael already mentioned it earlier, but um, 2020 was a year that was filled with adversity. And I don't need to, you know, tell you guys that. And actually, I feel like, like we hear that a lot. <laughs> like hearing about how 2020 was such a terrible year is, uh, in my opinion, a little overdone. And, and it's like, it's kind of exhausting sometimes to hear about how it was not a good year. Um, and if you followed the news this week with what happened at the Capitol on Wednesday, um, I mean, you see, right, like that adversity kind of continues uh, into this first week of 2021. Uh, but I want to I start by asking you this question. 
And it's a, it's a question that Pastor Kim and, and others have asked before, and they've maybe put it in different ways. But how did you steward the adversity and the challenges of last year? How did you steward the adversity and the challenges of last year? What did you take away from all of the hard stuff? How did this past year change you and form you as a person? Or would you look back at all of it and would you say it kind of felt like a wasted year for you? I look at verse 14 of chapter 7. He says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So I think that verse shows us and that teaches us that God made 2020, right? What we would consider a bad year, a difficult year. Um, But he also made the best year of your life. And he also made 2021. And so if I could sum up the big idea of our passage, I think I would put it something like this, that God's absolute sovereignty over everything, that includes prosperity and adversity, God's absolute sovereignty over everything, it means that we can learn wisdom from every part of life. God's absolute sovereignty over everything means that we can learn wisdom from every part of life. And let me show you this from the text. Um, we'll, We'll take this in two parts. And as you can see from the subpoints in that outline, uh, we'll spend more of our time on, on the second one. Okay, but uh, point number one is reality, and it's God's absolute sovereignty. God's absolute sovereignty. Remember, we said this is kind of the, the big umbrella under which this, uh, this passage falls. So God, he is absolutely, totally sovereign over everything. I mean, you guys know that. That is what the rest of the Bible affirms. Um, That is what the preacher has already shown us earlier in Ecclesiastes. Um, Think back to chapter 3, where we had that famous poem about time, right? And and we learned from that poem that we are subject to time. In other words, we simply respond, right? We just respond to what time does to us. We respond to the different events, the seasons that come into our lives. But God, on the other hand, he is the one who actually organizes and determines and fits all of those puzzle pieces and times and seasons of our lives together, right? In in that passage, uh, the preacher taught us that as humans, we are unable to figure it all out. We experience life as time, as it happens to us. We are unable to find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's what he said in uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11. And then he says something similar in our passage uh, in 6 verse 12, and then in chapter 7 verse 14, right? We don't know uh, what comes after us, but God does. Uh, The theologian Abraham uh, Kuyper once famously said that there is not a single square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That is the extent of God's sovereignty. We see that all throughout scripture. But something that we need to realize when we talk about his sovereignty is that it means that we are not. Okay, if God is sovereign, that means we're not. And hopefully as we've gone through Ecclesiastes, you have realized this more and more, that our experience of life in this fallen world is uh, described or characterized by that word havel, right? It's the word vanity. Um, that, That life eludes our grasp like your breath on a cold day. You cannot grab onto it. You cannot... 
uh, master it or manipulate it into the way that you want it to go. And so, in other words, God's sovereignty should teach us humility. Okay, we should respond with humility, knowing this truth. Um, in Ecclesiastes 5.2, the preacher says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Um, we see this same idea elsewhere in scripture. I think of Job 42, where Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Right? God is like challenging Job. Like, did you do this? Do you know this? And Job's like, I, like, I don't even understand. I've, I've said more than I know. Um, or Paul in Romans 9.20, right? He's talking about the very difficult doctrine of predestination. And there's a lot of questions that, that come up with that doctrine. Um, but in Romans 9.20, Paul is just like, at a certain point, he just says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Now, I, I know those passages might seem kind of uh, unsatisfactory, right? If like, you're in some sort of argument or debate. Uh, those are unsatisfactory answers. Maybe they even sound harsh to you. But I think what we see is that there's a point where God's sovereignty just ought to stop us in our tracks, where, where we, we must learn to submit and trust because God is God and we are not. And I think that is what the preacher is saying in chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. So in verse 10, he says, whatever has come to be has already been named. Okay, so the act of naming something, um, <clears throat> it demonstrates ownership. It demonstrates authority over that thing. So for example, parents, they name their children, right? Because they have authority over their children. Um, some people, they like to name their cars or like their musical instruments or whatever, because they own those things. It belongs to them. Um, think back to the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam authority over the rest of creation. And one of the demonstrations of that authority was to name all the animals. Okay, so to name something means that you own that thing, you have authority over that thing. And the preacher says, okay, if that's true of man with animals, then how much more with God and his entire creation? And he continues, it is known what man is. And, and that word man is actually uh, the word Adam or Adam. It is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Okay, so, so God might have given man the authority to name the animals, but the preacher says God named man. Right? God owns man. He has authority over man. Uh, there's a line of poetry that, that says, young man, young man, your arms too short to box with God. Young man, young man, your arms too short to box with God. I think that's kind of a good picture of what the preacher is saying here. That uh, the preacher says, God, uh, that's who one is referring to. God is stronger than you. That you cannot out-argue him, verse 11. You cannot outlive him, verse 12. You don't even always know what's good for you. Okay, God is so much greater than you. And the preacher wants to start us out here. He wants to start us out with this doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty over everything. Now, before we move on, I think just one quick application, um, one quick encouragement for you guys is to study this doctrine for yourselves. And I know that uh, the fact that God is sovereign is a familiar truth. Maybe it, it's even trite sometimes, or 
It's like something that you resign yourself to when things are out of your control. Uh, but let me just encourage you to really dive into the sovereignty of God for yourselves. And I honestly think that like, if you come to this deep understanding of this doctrine, that it will change your life. Right? How is God sovereign in trials? How is, he God, how is he sovereign in suffering and even with the existence of evil? Or how is God sovereign in your salvation? Right? I think like the more that we are able to, to know those truths, uh, it will really help you spiritually right? in every season of life. So he gives us this doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty, but he doesn't just stay there. Okay? And I think, I think the rest of this passage is actually an implication of God's sovereignty over our lives. In other words, he's helping us to answer the question, okay, what does it look like practi- practically for that doctrine to shape the way that we live? And I think it's helpful that the preacher gives us this because there are a lot of wrong ways to, to answer uh, this question. There are a lot of wrong ways to respond to God's sovereignty. Um, on top of that, there's a lot of wrong ways to, do, to respond to uh, just the frustrating nature of life that we learn about in Ecclesiastes. For example, some of you might still try to resist God's sovereignty. You, you still try to plan or control every detail of your life, even though the preacher teaches us that we cannot guarantee any outcomes. Or others of you, you might grow resigned to God's sovereignty. Maybe you think to yourself, okay, if God already controls everything, then why does anything matter? Or maybe you like dull yourself or you distract yourself um, from the hard parts of life so you don't have to think about them. Well, here in our passage, the preacher gives us a better and a more balanced way of looking at life, a a balanced way of responding to the sovereignty of God. Um, Look at verses 13 and 14 uh, of chapter seven, the very end. This is the other half of these bookends. It says, consider the work of God, who can make straight what he, what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So what is he saying? God is totally sovereign. And that means that both prosperity and adversity come from him. Um, the way that the Heidelberg Catechism puts it is that all things, rain and drought, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, they come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Okay, so all things come from God. And if that is true, then every moment, every part of life is an opportunity to learn from. Okay, every part of life is an opportunity to gain wisdom. And that leads us to our second point, which is the response Um, to get wisdom, okay, get wisdom. So if you look at chapter seven, um, the preacher, he switches from prose to poetry. And and you can probably see this kind of pretty obviously in your Bibles, Um, but I wanna point out how all of this is connected. And it has to do with a Hebrew word that shows up all throughout our passage, and it's the word tov, okay, tov. And uh, you might miss this actually in the English because it's translated two different ways in our passage. So it's translated as the word good. Uh, You see that in verse 12 of chapter six and also in verse one and verse 11 of chapter seven, good. But it's also translated as the word better. And, And you see better come up like multiple times in verses one to eight. Okay, that's the word tov. So, so follow the logic here, right? In verse 
uh, in 612, he says, who knows what is good, what is tov for man while he lives the, the few days of his vain life. He says, we don't even know what's good for us. We're like kids, right? We like, we would pick candy for dinner, even though vegetables are better for us. And then in these Proverbs in chapter seven, he's going to tell us what is good, what is better, what is, uh, what is tov, it's that word. And they're not the things that we might expect. In this life, the good stuff isn't always as good as it seems. That's what um, Ray showed us with money and riches in chapter six. And at the same time, the bad stuff isn't always as bad as it seems. So if you look through this passage, there are many things that we do not and we cannot know, right? We don't know what is good, verse 11. We don't know what's going to come after us, uh, verse 12, and then verse 14 of chapter 7. But there are some very valuable truths or lessons that we can learn. And so I want to look at three unlikely teachers of wisdom. Okay, three unlikely teachers of wisdom. The first one is this, that sadness is a better teacher than gladness. Sadness is a better teacher than gladness. And this is in verses 1 to 4. So in verse 1, the preacher says, a good name is better than precious ointment. Um, you can stop there. I, I think we understand this proverb, right? Um, that your name uh, is more important than anything else that's external or superficial about you, right? Your character, that's your name, um, your reputation. Your name outlives you. And I think this is especially important for you guys as college students, Um We've talked about this often at Beacon, that, that many of you have planned out a lot of different things for your, uh, your academics, for your career, about where you want to be in the next five to 10 years. And all of that is good, all of that is important. Uh, you know, study hard, excel in what you do, but also recognize that many of the things that you might hope to achieve or the things that you hope to possess, that they are what the preacher describes as precious ointment. Right? They are external, um, superficial things. In fact, these, these good things, um, they might even be harmful because they can cover up and keep you from examining your own character. And so let me ask you, for all the things that you've planned for yourself this upcoming semester or this upcoming year, have you made plans for and thought about how you want to grow in your character? You, you might have planned a lot of things. Have you planned about how you want to grow in your character, in the kind of person that you want to become? I mean, what are your specific weaknesses? What are your specific temptations? What steps do you want to take to grow in Christ-likeness? So who you are, your character is what matters, right? He says, a good name is better than precious ointment. Uh, but he continues, and, and this part I think is maybe a little more difficult for us to understand. He says, the day of death than the day of birth. The day of death and the day of birth. Now, when we read that, we have to recognize that proverbial sayings like that, uh, they, they require us to, to think a little bit. They're kind of like riddles almost. The preacher here is not saying that death itself is better than birth. I mean, I think other passages in the Bible, like Philippians 1, 23, or 2 Corinthians 5, 8, they, they do say something like that. They say, you know, it's better to be with Christ, um, to die and depart, um, than to be here on earth. So I think like there is kind of biblical truth to that, but the preacher here is saying something a little more specific. And I think verses two to four help us to get to that. Uh, look at what he says. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay to heart. 
Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Okay, so the preacher says that there is something about the day of your birth or about the day of your death, I'm sorry, that is more instructive than the day of your birth. That the house of mourning or sorrow or sadness of face is a better teacher than the house of feasting, laughter, and the house of mirth. And mirth is just like festivity or amusement. Think about it. What are the things that you pay attention to at a wedding versus what are the things that you pay attention to at a funeral? Um, I, I really appreciate many of the weddings that I've been to that have been officiated by Lighthouse pastors um, because I, I think they're done really well. Um, I think like every single one that I've been to that's been Lighthouse officiated, uh, the homily portion, which is, I guess, kind of like the, the sermon or, or the encouragement part, it's always like super personal. It's gospel centered. It's really insightful. It's, it's, it's done really well. Um, but even though that's going on, right, a lot of times people are paying attention to things like everything else. You know, they're paying attention to the beautiful decorations or they're like looking at the bridesmaids and, and the groomsmen. Um, they're looking at like all of the small, you know, funny details like, uh, you know, oh, they got to pick up the, the train of her wedding dress, right? And to make sure it's like positioned right. Or they're like watching for how awkward the hug with the parents is, you know, like all this like random stuff. They're looking at all these details in the wedding and that's what they're paying attention to because it's, it's funny, you know, it's exciting, it's, it's, uh, it's festive. But what about at a funeral? What do you pay attention to? Right? Suddenly at a funeral, every word of the officiant's eulogy is, is more weighty, right? Every word of that message is more weighty. You're not thinking about what other people are wearing. You're not thinking about the flowers. You're thinking about this person's life. You're, you're pondering questions of significance. Maybe you're even considering the fact that one day that is going to be you, right? That you will have a funeral. And I think that's actually the connection between the two halves of verse one. That it's occasions like these at, at the funeral, at the house of mourning, that bring what is important, right? Things like your name and your reputation and, and the kind of person that you were known to be. It brings those things more into focus. Now realize that the preacher, he's not being morbid, okay? He's not being this like big killjoy. He's already made clear that we should enjoy all the good gifts that life has to offer us. You guys even pointed that out earlier. But he's helping us here to have a more balanced and honest perspective. That it is appropriate to celebrate beginnings and potential and enjoyment and to throw parties. But it's also necessary and appropriate to acknowledge the real hard parts of life too. And what these things do, grief, sorrow, loss, what they do is they remind us that the good gifts in this life, that they come to an end. That these moments in life teach us that lesson that we've been repeating all along in Ecclesiastes. Enjoy life as a gift, not as a means to gain. Right? Enjoy life as it comes to you, not something you can hold on to forever. These moments in life keep us from placing too much stock um, in the things of this world. Now, I think, I think one thing that COVID has done for everyone is that it has confronted us with our own mortality. It's, it's taken away a lot of the usual distractions that we've used to avoid the realities of life. It's taught us, hopefully, um, 
to not take certain things for granted. And but even even though that's true, I think for for most people, I know for you guys as college students, even during COVID, that it's still easy to live in this kind of bubble. And maybe it's not intentional. Maybe it's just like you're relatively young. You haven't really experienced significant suffering. Um, and that's fine, right? You don't have to like intentionally put yourself in the way of suffering. You don't have to like go to someone else's funeral um, on purpose. But I would encourage you to, in, to enter into the suffering of others. And this can look different ways, right? Maybe it's just being a friend to someone else who's going through a hard time, sitting with them, asking questions, having loving and wise conversations. Um, or maybe it's more as uh, like a learner, a passive learner, right? listening to the testimonies of, of others. I mean, that, that is one way, that's one way we learn from the church, right? And just hearing what others uh, outside of our season of life have, have gone through. The preacher's words in, in verse three are strange, but they are profound. He says, by, uh, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. So there is this internal deep-seated gladness that is learned through sadness and adversity. I, mean, I think we can especially understand this as Christians, right? Like how can someone say after having gone through significant loss and suffering, like I wouldn't change anything, right? At the end of it, I wouldn't change anything. I think of like a Joni Erickson Tata who said that about um, her accident, which, which made her paralyzed. Well, it's because God uses the hard parts of life like death and sorrow and pain to remove superficiality. And he uses it to grow us as people of substance and depth, right? to grow us and to teach us wisdom and to, to draw us and drive us closer to him. Okay, so that's the first teacher. Um, second one is this correction is a better teacher than praise. Correction is a better teacher than praise. And this is in verses five to six. So the second idea, I think it's similar to the first, um, but specifically the preacher focuses on how we can learn wisdom from those, from those painful moments of correction. Um, look at verse five. He says, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. So here he contrasts the rebuke of the wise um, to the song or to the laughter of fools. And the picture that he uses here is, uh, he says, the crackling of thorns under a pot. Now, when I read that for the first time, I didn't know what it meant. Um, but apparently when you try and use thorns um, as like firewood, as, as something to burn, um, it doesn't work well. Okay, all it does is it produces very brief flames. It produces very little heat and it just makes a lot of noise. Okay, brief flames, little heat, lots of noise. That's what happens when you try to uh, burn thorns. That's what he's talking about. And I think that's, that's the picture of, uh, or that's true of just the many diversions that we distract ourselves with. And that's what it's like when we remove wise counsel from your life. And the stuff that you replace wise counsel with, like flattery, superficial and shallow conversations, um, jokes, laughing um, at dumb things like, it's not very useful, right? It's like, it makes a lot of noise for a little bit. There's no substance though. There's no lasting significance. Um, Proverbs 12, one, it's even more straightforward. It says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Okay, He who hates reproof is stupid. 
So if we want to live wisely, then we must learn the value of wise counsel and even painful correction. And so what does that look like in your life? Um, I hope you're not listening to me right now and thinking about like all the other people that, you know, could use some wise counsel um, and how you can rebuke them and, and help them out. Um, that's, that's a different sermon that's necessary, but we're not talking about that. I'm talking about what about you? Okay, do you invite wise counsel and correction into your life? When you think about your close friends, would they feel comfortable bringing something up to you? Uh, do you surround yourself with people who not only tell you the things that you want to hear and how awesome you are, but do you have people who are thoughtfully and lovingly concerned about whether you're living like Christ, right? whether you are fighting sin? I want to speak to those moments in which you receive correction, maybe done well, maybe done not so well. Um, like I've been there. I know the different emotions and ways that, that often we're tempted to respond, right? When someone like gives you a piece of rebuke, um, tempted to be bitter, right? To, to seek revenge, like, or to grow apathetic or just to be like crushed, right? Like super discouraged. Um, like all of a sudden you're not even a Christian anymore, right? Because someone offered this like rebuke to you. Um, I know the range of emotions, the ways that we're tempted to respond. And, and sometimes receiving correction from someone else hurts. Uh, even scripture acknowledges that Hebrews 12, 11, and speaking of God's fatherly discipline, it says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, so pain, or discipline is painful. But I think this passage hopefully encourages you to remember that correction and rebuke is good for us, right? It is one place where we learn wisdom. And even if it might sometimes be given imperfectly, it comes from God's sovereign hand. Um, Tim Keller, he wrote a very helpful blog post about how to take criticism of your views. And I just want to point out a couple of really insightful things he says. Um, first, he says, that the biggest danger of receiving criticism is not to your reputation, but to your heart. Okay, the biggest danger of receiving criticism is not to your reputation, but to your heart. It's just, it's like what we just talked about with the different ways we're tempted to respond, right? Like that, those moments reveal our heart. So recognize it's not just the content of like this other person's correction, but even the act of receiving the correction itself that is used by God to train your heart and to grow you in wisdom, humility, and Christ-likeness. And then the second thing he says is, um, if someone offers you unfair, unwarranted, maybe even like mistaken critique, don't shrug it off. Don't like resent them. Don't despise them. Even if what they say, 10% of it is true, take that 10% to heart and receive it humbly as God's grace to you. Right? Because it comes from him, right? It's, it's for your good. So I think these, these first two teachers, they instruct us that there needs to be this like healthy sobriety and seriousness in the Christian life. Okay, there is an appropriate time for laughing, for parties, for staying up late at night, um, for, for cracking jokes, for lightheartedness. It's okay to talk for hours with friends and at the end of all of it, be like, like, what did we even talk about again? Like, that's fine. That's good. It's God's grace to just enjoy other people's company like that. You don't have to ask in every single conversation. Uh, so what are you learning in your quiet times? In fact, maybe you shouldn't do that. But I would also say 
Don't let your youth, don't let your season of life keep you from a serious consideration of yourself, of this life, and of spiritual realities. Okay, that's why we do small groups, right? Because we want to give you a designated time to hopefully have more intentional spiritual conversations, to talk about God's grace in your life and other people's lives, to talk about sin and suffering. And by the way, I understand that... <clears throat> that it's difficult, it's, it's awkward, it's not ideal, um, uncomfortable sometimes, especially on Zoom. Um, but let me encourage you, if you know, if you already know that Zoom is like not the greatest place to meet, then like don't waste time. You know, you might as well like jump into it um, because we don't really all wanna hang around on Zoom for super long. So like just get to it, right? Like don't take advantage of your time together. Um, I think I read this quote from J.C. Ryle sometime in college, and it's stuck with me ever since, but I think it, it summarizes um, kind of what we've been talking about so far. So he talks about this man, I think, who uh, was converted. His friends noticed that he had all of a sudden grown really somber, very serious, and they, they approach him. They're like, hey, lighten up. Like, what happened to you? And this was his response. He says, I am serious for everyone around me is serious. God is serious in observing us. Christ is serious in interceding for us. The Spirit is serious in striving with us. The truths of God are serious. Our spiritual enemies are serious in their endeavors to ruin us. Poor lost sinners are serious in hell. And why then should you and I not be serious too? And that's a pretty intense quote, but I think it's a lot of truth in it. Right? Like spiritual realities. Uh, it's appropriate for us to have a healthy seriousness and to really consider the honest, uh, real parts of this life. Think about eternity. All right, the last teacher is this. Uh, Point C, patience is a better teacher than pride. Patience is a better teacher than pride. And this is verses seven to 10. Um, And I think verse eight is a key verse here. So he says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Um, we just start the new year. And so I feel like New Year's resolutions are uh, like an easy example for this. But I want you to think of a project that you started that you never finished. And maybe you can even remember um, certain things that you said at the beginning of it, like claims you made or boast about like just how awesome it would be, how it would change your life, um, how it would change you as a person. I think that's a picture of what the preacher calls the proud in spirit. Right? That we can, at the beginning of things, we can say a lot of things, we can imagine a lot of things, but when it actually requires us to do the hard work of being persistent and following through, that we are often unwilling to be patient. That we want to give up, we want to change our circumstances, we want to look for the easy way out. And the preacher says the patient are better than the proud that the end is better than the beginning, but we, you, you will never see the end if you're not patient. And actually in the rest of these verses, he gives us different ways uh, that this looks like. Okay, so for example, in verse seven, he talks about extortion or bribery, right? That is trying to pay your way out of your responsibilities. Um, or anger in verse nine, anger is being unwilling to accept your present circumstances. Uh, verse 10, it's an interesting one. He talks about nostalgia. He says, why were the former days better than this one? Um, And maybe when you read that question, you can visualize 
uh, like an old person saying something like that. Like, oh, back in my day, you know, like things were so awesome. And you're like, you didn't even have cell phones back then or like, you didn't have a computer. But to always be consumed with that question is to, to escape and to deceive ourselves that the past was only good and the present and the future are only bad. Okay, that, that's the kind of the deceptive part of nostalgia. It's, it's convincing ourselves that the past is only good and the present is only bad. I mean, how many of us are guilty of asking this question over the past several months? And yes, it's, it's true that there are certain things that we long to be able to do again normally, right? To gather at church, to eat in restaurants, to travel, um, to go to school in person. But the preacher says that this incessant longing for the past, it doesn't come from wisdom because you miss out on what God has for you today and right now. But it's not just COVID. I think COVID is... Uh, Uh, kind of a current example for us, but for you guys, college students, you will find yourselves in situations in which you wonder if it's just better for you to quit. If it's just better for you to uh, change your circumstances or find an easy way out. Maybe you're in the middle of a difficult class or an unfulfilling job or a challenging relationship or a Bible reading plan or a new year's resolution. And yeah, in certain cases, it's wise. It's right to change certain things. I'm not saying you have to like stick through every single thing, But are you heeding the preacher's wisdom here? That patience is valuable, right? There's something important in this present moment that God is trying to teach you. Living life in this world requires wisdom. And by the sovereignty of God, we can learn wisdom even from these unlikely teachers. And in verses 11 to 12, the preacher compares um, wisdom with money. He says, both protect you. Right? So if you have this unexpected expense, if your car breaks down, you can protect yourself because you have some money saved up in the bank. But wisdom, he says, is even more valuable. Wisdom will preserve your life. Wisdom is what help you use your money wisely. And notice that word good in verse 11, right? Remember that question that he asked in chapter 6, verse 12, who knows what is good? And here at the end of this passage, he says, Wisdom is good. Look at verse 13 and 14 again. It says, Consider the word of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked, and the day of prosperity be joyful, and the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. It says, Wisdom is good. But as we've learned throughout Ecclesiastes, it is not something that we, we leverage. It's not something that we try to manipulate life with. It says, Wisdom cannot make straight what God has made crooked. The kind of wisdom that the preacher is talking about is one that acknowledges the absolute sovereignty of God in all things. It's a wisdom, wisdom that embraces our limitations of knowledge and understanding. That we don't know what's coming tomorrow. Even if we did, we don't know what's good and what's bad for us. And because of that, it's to look to God in humility and trust and to consider him in everything. Right? That's the kind of wisdom that he's talking about. And so as we close, I want to just return to that question I asked earlier. How did you steward the challenges of 2020? And as we enter this new year, you know, we are all still looking forward to many things, hopefully getting better. But while we're here, let me encourage you, let me challenge you, don't waste it. Don't waste it. Pastor Kim says it all the time. Nothing has passed into your life which hasn't first passed through the filter of God's love. Learn from where you are today. 
Let it grow you in wisdom and drive you to God who is sovereign. And as we do that, I trust that we will be able to look back and say, you know, it was really challenging. It was really hard, but it was good. Right? It was good for me. Uh, let me just close by reading from 2 Corinthians 4, 16 18. Paul says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge your absolute sovereignty. You are the one who has made the day of prosperity as well as the day of adversity. And you are sovereign over it all. And uh, even more than that, our hope as believers is that even in adversity, that you are bringing about good, um, our good, our, our, our faith, the working of our faith um, in it and through it. And so, Father, in this uh, current season, for which many of us would consider difficult, challenging, um, teach us wisdom, Lord. Help us to see everything from your fatherly hand. Um, help us to, to learn um, from, from our experiences, from the circumstances that you bring into our lives. And God, we thank you, and we trust you. Praise Jesus' name. Amen.